Today we're going to be in Acts chapter 10. The last time we saw the Lord draw Peter and Cornelius together for the sake of being a doorway to Gentile conversion. Somebody gave me a DVD about a, de- a debate that took place some years back with a rabbi, uh, Boteach, and uh, a Hebrew scholar, Dr. Michael Brown. And they went back and forth, and Brown was a Jewish believer in Jesus, and Boteach was not. And Boteach made the uh, assertion that Christianity has become anti-Semitic. Now, I would just say that anyone in the name of Christ who is anti-Semitic is not truly following Jesus' teachings. But what we're going to see, what's interesting, is that as time went on, we see, unfortunately, in history, some church history did take on that tone, which was evil, for lack of a better term. But the interesting thing is when Christianity started, it was all Jewish, and we're going to see that. As a matter of fact, the Jewish church was anti-Gentile. So you, th- you see how things kind of flipped. And we're going to talk about some of these issues. But we had a guest speaker last Sunday, and uh, in case you, know, you don't remember, I'm going to give a little recap as to what happened uh, two Sundays ago. What happened was we saw that God called Cornelius to Peter, who was the Roman centurion, and we saw that God called Peter to Cornelius because on their own they would have never made the connection. Think about it. Again, I try to get you to put yourself, your mind at that time. The Romans were fierce. They were warriors, and the, they were uh, polytheists, and they looked down on the Jews. You know, They conquered them really with not a whole lot of resistance, and they subjugated them. So there was a, you know, a prejudice of looking down on them. They were simple people. And the Jews looked at the Romans as these pagans, these lascivious, uh, improper diet-eating uh, pagans who came and conquered them. How dare they? And when was the Lord going to send the, the Messiah to, to deal with these people? So you see, on their own, there probably would have never been that connection. The second point is upon meeting each other, they both tell their story about how God brought them together. And the third thing is after they dispense with their testimonies, Cornelius basically says to Peter, you have the floor. What does God want to say to me and my family and all these people I brought to hear God's word? And then, of course, I quoted 1 Peter 3.15 the last time where it says, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear or respect and humility. And I left you with, when the time comes for God to give his word and he uses you, will you be ready? And we talked about prayer. We talked about being in the word and what church really is for. So we're going to start with verse 34. Then Peter opened his mouth and said, In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality. He's not a respecter of persons. But in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. The word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. The word that you know, which was proclaimed throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all things which he did, both in the land of the Jews in Jerusalem, whom they killed by hanging on a tree. Him God raised up on the third day and showed him openly, not to all people, but to witnesses chosen before by God, even to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. 
And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it is he who was ordained by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. So the moral of the story is there's a a big punch in the first verse. Peter opened his mouth and said, in truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality or preference. Why is that important? Because unfortunately, by that day, there was an ingrained bigotry among God's people. Say it ain't so. Not only did they despise the Gentiles, but they despised the Samaritans, who were at least part Jewish, but to them that wasn't good enough because they weren't full. Two facts. In the Old Testament, any Gentile pre-Christ could have been accepted into the fold by believing the monotheistic God through the Mosaic system. That's how God set it up. Any Gentile could have said, wow, you know, your God is the true and living God. And, and it happened often. I believe, you know, in your God. And they would have been, uh, you know, incorporated into the, the Jewish system. The second fact was two Gentile women were part of the bloodline of the Messiah. We covered that in Luke. And one of them was a prostitute. How's that for inclusion? Not to mention all the Old Testament scriptures regarding Gentile inclusion. Every once in a while, I'm going to expound on this one verse, and we're going to, believe me, we're going to cover the rest of chapter 10, but every once in a while, or actually all the time, the truths in the Bible are severely appropriate to today's uh, situation. Racism, bigotry, prejudice, stereotyping, discrimination, they're not new concepts. They're all a fact of life in this world. And what do they have in common? Well, they all have different definitions. So I took them all and I made my own definition for what they all uh, encompass. It's the process of choosing some people over others based on subjective terms, feelings, fears, etc. But it's awful. It's odious. It's reprehensible when it's among God's people. Unfortunately, every so often, someone who's a so-called Christian, you may hear something come out of their mouth that's prejudiced or, or preferential, and it's never a good thing to hear that. But the interesting thing about prejudice is it can cut both ways, and it can both be bad. We usually think of prejudice as a negative thing, but prejudice can be a positive thing at the expense of other people. I'll give you a harmless example. A few years back when my son was playing uh, into soccer, you know, he wasn't very good at it, but all the little kids were kicking the ball around, and all I could focus on was my son. <laughs> to me, he was the best soccer player. He was going to be a great soccer star, right? Because I was prejudiced for my son. Now, he doesn't play soccer anymore. He got frustrated that he can't use his arms. I don't like soccer either, because usually during soccer season, everybody leaves the church, but we have our different reasons. <laughs> the second thing is, what about subtle prejudices? I think this is something that's worth exploring. Sadly, these subtle prejudices are often acceptable. One, socioeconomic, blue-collar versus white-collar. How many of you treat the person who serves you your burger and fries at the drive-thru like they're, they don't even exist? How do you treat the kid pumping gas when you get your car filled up? Do you treat them like human beings? Because unfortunately, most people treat them like dirt. When I see any of these people, I call them sir, ma'am, and I respect them. And they respond like, what's with you? It's because they don't get it that often. They're human beings. But we can look down on people based on socioeconomic uh, ideas that we have. 
I want to turn your attention to James uh, 2, starting with verse 1. James 2. James says, My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality or favoritism. For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings and fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say to him, Oh, you sit here in a good place, and say to the poor man, You stand there, or sit here at my footstool. Have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? God, God feels very strongly about this. Listen, my beloved brethren, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? Do they not blaspheme that noble name by which you are called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and convicted and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Yes, we have laws in our country, federal laws, state laws about discrimination. But our highest moral authority comes from the scripture. And the Bible says that if we show partiality, we are in sin. What about, again, what about weight? Do you look at somebody based on their weight and already form an opinion about them? It happens. And it can cut both ways. My wife and I, I've dropped a lot of weight since college, um, you know. And my wife is thin. And uh, I talked to some friends recently. I hadn't seen them in years. And we had come over to their house for dinner. And again, they haven't seen me in a while. They never met my wife. We opened the door. The greeting wasn't, hello, hey, haven't seen you, missed you. The greeting was, Oh, look, skinny people. First of all, I don't like to be called skinny. That bugs me. But, uh, no, it was a good, it was a good night. Uh, it, you know, turned out well. But they based, they looked at us based on our, our appearance and made immediately, that was what they took a snapshot of and that was their response. Or even attractive people. Skinny people, attractive people, it cuts both ways. Or what we consider attractive. Sometimes people look at them and you ever get where somebody doesn't like you just because they don't like you? It's almost like you didn't even say anything yet, or you don't like somebody, right? You look at somebody for the first time, they didn't even open their mouth, and you don't like them. Why? They didn't say anything yet. It's because you're making a judgment based on your appearance. Don't do it. It's wrong. When someone catches our eye, again, we often judge on appearance. Hair. People make judgments based on somebody's hairstyle, the length of it, the color, the whatever it is. Uh, clothing. Features. The Bible says that man looks at the appearance, but God looks at the heart. Why do we get so tied up in foolish things? God looks at the heart, so we should look at the heart too. God shows no partiality, but we often do. You could make a judgment about me. No doubt if I came up here one day, I usually match. See, brown shoes, brown shirt, because my wife usually picks my stuff out. But if I came up here one day and I didn't match and I was all disheveled, you might say, well, Joe must have got up and left the house before Heather woke up, right? You made a judgment about me, and that's a harmless judgment, but most aren't. And those judgments we need to reject from our minds. And nobody's immune to this. Somebody could be the victim one day and be the victimizer the next day. It's because of sin, right? And this is appropriate because we see Peter, you know, newsflash, Peter, God's not a bigot. 
That's great. But his ideas of these people were skewed until God said, I'm accepting them into the fold also. So it's, it's something that, again, we can take into our society and, and learn from it. What about more subtle uh, issues? Subtle, staying with your own type. What is your own type? I stay with my own kind. Okay? Sticking with people just like you. A favoritism, a pro, right? Singles with the singles, marrieds with the marries, mommies with the mommies, the businessmen with the businessmen, the cops for Christ with the cops for Christ, the Spanish with the Spanish, the lepers with the lepers, and so on and so forth. Now, hear me. I'm not saying it's sinful to be comfortable with people with similar interests. I'm not saying that, but sometimes we go too far. When we get to the point and we're so specialized that we have to accommodate the three-eyed, single, bohemian, sword-swallowing, basket weavers for Christ, we've definitely gone too far. Christ brought down the walls of division. Why do we often try to build them back up? We do that as human beings. It's something that people don't want to talk about. We need to come out of our comfort zones and get to know someone who's different from us. I've got news for you. As far as everything I've read in the scripture, there's no segregation in the kingdom. We're not going to go to heaven and have these cliques and groups and, and be segregated and God's going to visit us all individually. We're all going to be mixed so if there's no segregation in the kingdom of heaven, why do we do it here? What if I just stayed with my type? Actually, I don't even know what my type is. I'm a strange type of fellow, so I haven't figured out what my type is, but I, I fellowship with everybody. Two women I know uh, in another church, divorced, middle-aged, single, they actually left one of the churches because they felt they couldn't break into the cliques. They felt that they weren't accepted. That's, that's pretty heartbreaking. You know, we're, we're with us. You know, we're, we're like us. You, you don't really fit the mold like, like we are here. You know what I'm saying? Now, a little caveat to that is I believe the majority of what we do here in this church is mixed. You know, the Sundays, the Wednesdays, the fellowships, pretty much everything is mixed. There's just a little caveat with uh, we have a men's group and we have a women's group. And uh, sometimes guys can be funny and clam up if they're around a mixed group. So uh, that, that's good to have that. And the first thing is, often men, we don't want to hear women's issues. And women, we would probably bore you with our boorish behavior. And number three, we often probably, if we were mixed, us men, we wouldn't get a lot of airtime. You know, I hope you're not offended. My wife was at the uh, women's luncheon yesterday, and... Uh, from 11, gee, or 10.30 till 3.30, 5, four and a half, five hours, I'm calling on her cell phone. I'm thinking something happened to her. I'm like, what possibly could she talk about for all those hours, you know? We have a men's group an hour or two. Hey, hey guys, all right, we're, we're done. We're out of here. See you next men's group. Yeah, <clears throat> grunt. Fourth thing, favoritism as a parent. I believe it's worth mentioning. You know, every parent, if you have more than one child, you try to do the best you can to divide your love, your time, your energy with those children. And, of course, you know, kids can manipulate you and say, oh, you love him more than you love me and that kind of thing. But most parents do a great job of really trying to divide their time. However, I'm talking about obvious favoritism. I've actually seen it where a parent will obviously favor one over the other, and that's painful. And even when they become an adult, it's still painful. It, it doesn't change. So that's not a good thing to do. 
Now, those of you who are Bible scholars may say, well, what about Jacob and Esau? That's a good question, so I'm going to answer it before you tell me, ask me that in the hallway. Jacob and Esau. Remember, God knows the end from the beginning. He knew what was going to happen in Jacob and Esau's lives. And also, Jacob uh, or Esau gave up the things of God for foolish, for foolishness. He didn't really care much about the things of God. He was more of a, a base type of fellow, right? So there's definitely not a, you can't make a one-for-one one equivalent there. So I encourage, as a pastor, I encourage mixing with the body of Christ. I often counsel people, get to know somebody different. Proverbs 18.24 says, if you, the, the person who wants friends must first be friendly. The bottom line is, I can't make anybody reach out to anybody else. And some take longer than others because they're shy and that's okay. But in my heart, I, I, it grieves me to seek any cliquishness or exclusivity. And I, when I talk about the body of Christ, I talk about aggregate. You know, I'm not chastising anybody here. But I want to read a few scriptures about how Jesus Christ, how uh, the gospel broke down the walls of division. Just a few of them. Romans 3.22, two verses. It says, Even the righteousness of God, which is through faith in Jesus Christ to all, and on all who believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're all sinners, and salvation is open to all of us. Romans 10:12. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls upon the, the Lord will be, the name of the Lord will be saved. Ephesians 2:14 For he himself is our peace who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of division between us having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances so as to create in himself one new man from the two thus making peace and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross thereby putting to death the enmity and he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. And Colossians 3.25. But he who does wrong will be repaid for the wrong which he has done, and there is no partiality. What I find interesting about that is even in punishment, God doesn't show favoritism. Right is right, wrong is wrong. Going back to Acts 10, verse 41, one particular verse that stands out is that they said that even to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead, Jesus ate and drank after the resurrection. That's clear. He wasn't a phantom. He wasn't a ghost. He was in bodily form. Uh, some of the cults draw people away with some nuances and idiosyncrasies uh, in, in um, obscured uh, portions of scripture some teach that he was a phantom. Some teach that he became the archangel Michael. There's a lot of bizarre interpretations of what happened to Jesus after the resurrection that have no basis in Scripture. Quick point on Peter. If you sum it all up and you look at Peter's story, okay, he gave the gospel from the beginning to the end. What Jesus ministered, how he healed people, his substitutionary death. You know, he was sinless. He rose on the, on the third day. 
okay, in fulfillment of scriptures. So Peter gives that picture to these Gentiles who are trying to understand how to be saved. So he gives them the gospel. Peter didn't give him, oh, God loves you. Hey, guys, God loves you. Got to go. See you next week. Let me know how you make out. God loves you is nice, but it's not the gospel. It's not the full story. God can love you and also grieve while he watches you choose damnation because he gave us free will and, and a choice. He loves us. Jesus died for our sins, but we have to also receive that gift. We have to believe, we repent and believe that he did that for us. Again, Peter gave the gospel the good news, not 40 days of purpose. And it's good to have purpose. And it's certainly good to have 40 days of purpose. But that's not the gospel either. No matter how many churches substitute the Bible for 40 days of purpose, that's not the gospel. He gave the good news, the gospel, not many roads lead to heaven or good works over bad works will get you to heaven. Not only is that not the gospel, but that's not even true. And Peter gave the gospel not denominationalism or one religion is elevated over another. If you look in, in the early church, there was no denominations. We have probably hundreds and thousands of them now. And Calvary started out saying, hey, we're not denominationalism. But Calvary's been around so long that we've actually become a denomination. It's kind of an ir ironic thing there. Although I use other pastors and other works from people from other denominations in my uh, sermons, I don't focus on denominationalism, and we shouldn't either. We're all the body of Christ together. He gave, Peter gave Cornelius and his family the gospel. John 3:16. For God so, so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe on him would not perish but have everlasting life. That's the gospel. I want to read a, a quote from Chuck Smith in his book, Line Upon Line. And he says this on page 12. The only standard of truth is that which is from God. Because today we see that truth is relative, right? Your truth, my truth, there is no truth if there is relative truth because it doesn't make sense. Because truth is an absolute. Christians need to return to the book that has laid the foundation and established the code of ethics, morality, and truth for centuries, the Bible. As the Lord reminds us in his stately prayer for his disciples, sanctify them by your truth, your word is truth. John 17:17. 17, 17. Two weeks ago, I, uh, people wanted truth. Two weeks ago, I was getting my car fixed, and I met a brother in the Lord at the dealership, and we got into talking, and he said, you know what? I'm happy that you preach the truth. He goes, the truth stings a little bit, but I like the truth. I need the truth. Peter gave you the truth, and I'm here to give you the truth. Verse 44. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. And those of the circumcision who believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Then Peter answered, Can anyone forbid water? that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Then they asked him to stay a few days. Once the Holy Spirit, I'm sorry, once again the Holy Spirit falls on this group. We saw in Pentecost, the Holy Spirit fell on the Jews, right? We saw in Samaria, we saw another great work of the Holy Spirit where it was visible. So it was some magnificent work of the Holy Spirit. The Samaritans, half Jews, half other people. And now we see the Holy Spirit fall on the Gentiles. There's no more debate on this issue. 
because God has confirmed visibly and supernaturally that he accepts all, no division. The Holy Spirit fell while Peter was speaking. When God sees us in his word and giving the gospel and sharing the things of God, that's something he wants to be a part of. In a sense, God wants to join the party. So while Peter's doing the right thing, the Holy Spirit falls on this group of people. The Holy Spirit plays a continual role in the believer's life from beginning to the end. Also, Jesus said, when two or more are gathered in my name, there I will be in the midst of them. Matthew 18:20. And, of course, the Father inhabits the praises of his people. Psalm 22:3. So when you're in Jesus, it's, it's a package deal. You get Jesus, you get the Father, and you get the Holy Spirit. They all come together. Now notice, the Holy Spirit didn't fall on Peter while he was gossiping or complaining, right? Peter didn't come to Cornelius and say, you know, I'm one of the better apostles. That guy, Paul, he's kind of new, and John, he's nothing special. I'm one of the better ones. The Holy Spirit didn't fall on him on them while he was doing that. The Holy Spirit didn't fall on Peter while he was pampering himself. He didn't come to the group and say, hey, I'm an apostle. I'm the first pope. You know, you better respect me. Didn't happen. The Holy Spirit fell on this group while there was the speaking of God's word and the praising of God. So the question is, do we want more of God in our life? Do we? Then we need to be more involved with the things that God desires. My prayer is often, Lord, please fill me with your Holy Spirit. It's a simple prayer. Because things that are going on in my life, the pains that I may be having, the issues, we all have issues, right? When we're filled with the Holy Spirit, those things kind of fade away to the backdrop and God takes preeminence in our life. Again, you want God to be in your life, then be involved in the things that he likes. It's a relationship issue. When Heather and I were first dating, I wanted to be around her. So I would... uh, you know, find the things that she liked and try to be involved in the things that she liked. Taking long walks, that kind of stuff, you know. <laughs> and one of the things that she liked was cats. Most of you that know my wife, she's loved cats. We have a whole bunch of them. One thing good about them is in the winter, when they sleep with you, they keep the bed warm. It's awesome. But I remember when I was first dating her, you know, I never owned cats before, and uh, I ended up getting two kittens. I don't know how to take care of cats, kittens, whatever. So, you know, what I didn't realize was, I'm like, this is great. They play all day, they play all day, they play all day. And then when I went to sleep, (laughs) they play all night. I was like, oh, this is not good. But I would have done anything to have Heather in my life. And her interests also, now I love cats, but her interests became my interests. Okay, taking that with God is, if you love God and you truly say you love God, then be involved in the things that he's interested in, right? Jesus said, it's those who love me that follow my word. It's those who hate me in the NIV that do not follow my word. If we're not in his word, how do we know what he likes and what he doesn't like? That's why the Bible is timeless, you see. When uh, uh, Strat from Gospel for Asia was here last week, he talked about a house of prayer. And he talked about, I believe it was him, he said that the average Christian or evangelical Christian spends only five minutes a day in prayer. Add that up. Seven times five is 35, a half an hour basically. There's 168 hours in a seven-day period, and we give God a half an hour. That's that's a fraction of a percent. It's not acceptable. So do we have a house of prayer? 
Do we make this fellowship a house of prayer? Is prayer important in our lives? Verse 45. And those of the circumcision who believed were astonished. So basically, these were the Jewish uh, believers, and they're astonished seeing this thing where the Holy Spirit is falling on the Gentiles. The word astonished in the Greek is excestasan, which literally means, if you take apart the Greek word, it literally means for your mind to stand outside of yourself. Maybe that's where the term beside yourself came from, but they were standing outside their selves in astonishment, almost as if to say, wow, the Holy Spirit is poured out on the Gentiles? Is, am, I really, am I seeing this right? You've got to be kidding. Remember, they still had that ingrained prejudice. It goes back to that word again that had to be broken. Did you ever get a look or a response from your own kind when you talk to somebody who's different from them and they give you a look almost as if to say, we don't associate with those type of people? In context, I think that they were overjoyed that this was happening. It was pretty amazing. But prior to that, and even prior to Peter's statement, now I perceive that God shows no partiality, there was an ingrained prejudice among those people towards other people. And the Bible didn't say, the Old Testament didn't say you couldn't come into a Gentile's house or you couldn't fellowship. All it said was, be careful of the diet. So what happened was the Jews took the dietary restrictions and said, well, they're dirty all around, and they wouldn't even go into their houses or fellowship with them. You see? So I tell you, that prejudice word is a timeless word. It's sinful, and it's been around since the beginning. But, again, we have, I'm sure all of us have experienced, whatever your kind is, somebody giving you a look when you attempt to go out outside of your comfortable group of people and fellowship with somebody else, and they're like, wait a minute, what are you doing there? We don't associate with those types of people, whoever those types of people are. Verse 48 and he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Then they asked him to stay a few days. Last line. This contingent of Gentiles asks Peter, will you stay a few days with us? Or, translation, Peter, please don't leave. We have so many questions. We just can't get enough. We'll stay up until 6 in the morning talking about this stuff. Please don't leave. And again, as a fellowship... Even though we, you know, rent this school, we try to have activities on Sunday, you know, Monday, Saturday, uh, Friday, Wednesday, etc. So that we answer your questions, especially those who are, who are new and don't know much of what God's word is. We want to answer those questions, just like Peter probably stayed to answer their questions. If you're a believer for a while... And you love to be in the Word, maybe 10 years ago, 5 years ago, and just something happened in your life that derailed you. And you just like, you, you're, you're listening to this and you have a yearning to be back in the Word. What's pulled you away? Is it a house project? Those are great for pulling people away from the Word of God. If we were playing Family Feud and Richard Dawson was up here and said, surveyed said, ding, 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 house project would be up there, right? House project, relationship. Those are the biggest ones, any type of relationship. Those are good for the top three for pulling you away from the word of God. What about a demanding job? Well, I've got to provide for my family, Pastor Joe. You don't understand. Okay, well, how much is enough? Sometimes it's never enough, no matter how much we make, no matter how much we pad into our retirement accounts. 
a demanding job can pull you away from the word of God. So what is it this morning that has pulled you? Maybe something I haven't mentioned. What has pulled you away from the word of God? And you know in your heart that something's missing and you're trying to cover it up. And you're trying to pretend like it doesn't exist, but something's pulling you away from the word of God. Let this be the message today, and I encourage you, that gets you back in the Word of God. You saw the excitement of Peter. You saw the excitement of the Gentiles. We should continue. Even after 11 years, I still have that excitement for the Word of God. Have we lost our desire to be immersed in the Word of God? And the question is, what if I just said, I'm not going to do expository teaching. I'm just going to read the Bible on Sunday. Would that be enough? Would people still come to church if I just read line by line by line by line? Should be. Has it become a routine? Well, this is what I do. Every Sunday I get up and I go to church. That's my routine. Has it become a service? Well, you know, if you're a Christian, you should serve. So serve, serve, serve. That's what I'm going to do. Has it just become a function? Well, I like the fellowship. You know, I like talking to people. I get to catch up with people because all day at work, uh, I work and I get to see my friends and we talk about things. Or has it become entertainment sometimes? It's a heart check. Now, I tell some goofy stories because especially as a young husband, and even now sometimes, but not as much, I did goofy things, right? And I like to use myself as an example, so you don't do it. And sometimes I get a laugh out of you. But is that what it's about? No, it's not. What about when I come out from behind the pulpit and I walk around and I talk to people? Hey, I like when you do that. Can you do that more? Is that what it's about? No, it's not. What about when I put the maps up up here and I have that little green pointer and I show you where Paul went and all the different travels? Hey, I like geography. Is that what it's about? No, it's not. Pastor Joe, entertain us. Pastor whoever, entertain us. Show time for the sheep, right? Dave Hunt wrote. Nonsense. We're here for the word of God. We're here for the word of God, not entertainment. It doesn't matter what other people have going on. It doesn't matter... You know, all the entertainment that's going on in Christianity, because we're spoiled. We have, I have like seven or eight, maybe more Bibles at home, different Bibles, different translations. I got Greek Bibles, commentaries, you know, you name it, we have it. We have it on the computer, we have it on the iPod, we can listen to it on the radio. We are so spoiled. There's people in other countries that in, in some underground churches in China, they have one page and they pass it around the village, you know, of a, a page of First Corinthians. And it's like gold to them, and they share it with each other, right? It's not about entertainment. It's about our relationship with God. This is a simple message here today, and I want to bring up three points, and then I'll close. God shows no bias or favoritism, so neither should we. I don't know when this subject will come up, but again, in the Scripture, but again, it was worth going over. It was worth really digging deep. Favoritism, bias, bigotry, prejudice, None of us say it ain't so among God's people. If a Roman soldier and a devout Jew could get get together through the umbrella of Jesus Christ, then everybody can. Last week, uh, I was on a call, and uh, there was a woman that I met who had a, a crack, you know, crack cocaine problem, and she had consumed it earlier in the day, and we had to get her to the squad uh, and take care of her. But, you know, while I was waiting for the squad, I was talking with her. And, man, she was a delightful woman. I had such a great time talking to her. People looking at it from the outside would think, well, maybe, you know, he's a cop and she's a a drug user. There's going to be an issue there. You know, what's going to happen here? She was honest. She was open to suggestions. You know, of course, you know me. I'm going to try to help her with her life and try to help her to get off the stuff, right? 
She was totally open, totally genuine, totally honest, not fearing that I would do anything to her. And we just had a great conversation prior to the squad coming. And sometime later, I checked up on her to make sure she was okay. So we developed like a rapport. And sometimes that's more enjoyable than dealing with self-righteous, pretentious, and uncorrectable Christians. And we all run into them, don't we? And, you know, there's a story about the prodigal son. The older brother represented Christians who've been Christians for so long that it it's becomes a culture. And the older brother didn't like the fact that the father who represented God accepted the younger brother back into the fold. And the younger brother represented those who have fallen away or have gone into bad things in their life. And God has accepted them because that's what he does. And I, I think the point I'm trying to make is that let's never get let's never get in our walk to the point where we look down on other people. I don't you know what? Who cares what somebody's past is? Who cares what they've been involved with? Don't you ever hold that against somebody else. It's wrong. So God shows no bias or favoritism, so neither should we. The second point is Cornelius and his family had a zeal and a hunger for the things of the things of God, so so should we. And the third thing is when Peter and Cornelius' parties got together for the sake of what was important to God, there was a great work of the Holy Spirit. So I would ask that we would put these three principles in practice and have that hunger for the Holy Spirit to repeat what he did there in our lives today. Let's pray. Don't you ever hold...